Good morning, everyone. I invite you to stand, please, if you would, as we come to the text this morning. We'll start with our prayer of commitment called the Shema, coming from Deuteronomy 6. It's a prayer that says, God, with everything in us, before we approach the text, before we come and hear your good news, we want to be fully committed to you. We want to be ready to hear. So say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. These are the very words of God. Uh, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But a while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast to celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is has, has back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and, you, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave uh, a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The other night, I was reading bedtime stories with my daughter, Mia, uh, from the Beginner's Bible. If anyone used uh, this or grew up with with this, the Beginner's Bible. So we read passages, we read different stories uh, from night to night, and just a few nights ago, we were reading, and we actually came across this parable. And it's one I'd been uh, studying and getting ready for, so I thought, huh, that's interesting. I wonder how they would uh, write the story. How would they tell the story? So settle in, friends. We're going to read a bedtime story. 
This is the lost son, Luke 15, 11 through 32, from the Beginner's Bible. And it's titled, The Lost Son. Jesus told another parable about God's love. There was a man who had two sons, said Jesus. He owned a big farm. I don't know if I should do like that. <laughs> I'll spare you. You can see it in the end if, if, if you want. His younger son did not want to go to work anymore. He wanted to travel and have fun. So he asked his father for his share of the family money. The son got the money. He packed his things and left. He couldn't wait to see the world. His family was sad to see him go. At first, he had fun spending the money. He bought expensive clothes, and he ate fancy food. They don't mention the other things he did, if you notice that. Hard bedtime conversation. But soon, all the money was gone. He had to go to work, and he got a job with a pig farmer. He was so hungry that even the pig's food looked good. The son wanted to go back home. He said, I will tell my father, I am sorry for what I have done. I do not deserve to be called his son, but maybe he will let me work. Maybe he will let me work for him. The father saw his son coming down the road, his eyes filled with tears as he ran to greet him. The son said, please forgive me, dad. That night, they had a big party. The father exclaimed, my son was lost, and now he's found. Jesus explained his story. God is like the father. He is full of love and joy when people who are lost come back to him. The end. Now, that's a nice story, and I appreciate it, and Mia seems to like it all right. But the problem is, is I thought the man had two sons. I thought he had two sons. And yet, when I look at these children's stories, they seem to cut a part out. They seem to reconcile one son, and they seem to kind of skirt away the other son. Often, like the Beginner's Bible, we concentrate, I think, on the flight and the reconciliation of the younger brother. What is the famous uh, title, or, or, or how, what do we usually say about this story? It's the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal son, singular. And we focus, and our, our kids' Bibles focus on the one son who is lost for sure and is found. But this is a story about two sons. And there's a large part of the story that's left out of the beginner's Bible that I wish they would have written in. It misses half the story because there was a man who had two sons. And if you're in your Bible this morning, you see we're in chapter 15. If you look to the beginning of the chapter, the very first verses of chapter 15, you see Jesus tells three parables all about lostness. So all of these parables are all connected to one another. Jesus is telling an intentional narrative and story about three things that are lost. And we see the audience. Look in the first two verses. Look at the audience for which Jesus is talking to. There are two actually groups of people there that our Bible talks about. First, there were the tax collectors and the sinners. They observe neither the moral law of the Bible nor the ceremonial law of the religious Jews. They left the traditional morality of their families and of respectable society and engaged in wild living. Well, surely Jesus is talking about them. But there's a second group listening. The second group of listeners were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
They held to the traditional morality of their upbringing. They studied and they obeyed scripture. They worshiped faithfully and prayed constantly. So might I say that Jesus' story might be best named as the parable of the lost sons. It is a drama in two acts, with act one entitled The Lost Younger Brother and act two, The Lost Older Brother. You see, this story is about two sons, and both are invited to come home and find their place at the table. What will they do? Act one. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. Now in those days, in that culture, if a son went to his father and said, Father, I'd like my inheritance early, it is the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. The shock and dismay felt by the audience is lost on us because we wouldn't necessarily do that. But this is very clear what he's saying. He's saying, Father... I would prefer a life in which you are not here than to one that you are here. I wish you dead. And so that's our first film this morning. The younger son wishes his father dead. There's a story that's told in a book called Poets and Peasants by Kenneth Bailey. And he records an occasion in the Middle East where a son does this very thing. He asks his father for his inheritance early. And he writes this in the book. He says, in great anguish, the father cried out, my son wants me to die. Three months later, the father did die. And when his mother responded, she said, he didn't die this night. He died the night his son dared ask him for the inheritance. You see, in that culture, that patriarchal culture, for a son to have the gall, the gumption, to stand in front of his father and say, Father, I want my inheritance now, was one of the greatest insults you could give to a father. He stood there to his face and said, I prefer you dead to alive. I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Now, a traditional Middle Eastern father would be expected at this point to shove and throw the son out of the house, likely with physical blows. Just this, 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 it was so unconscionable to be able to ask this sort of thing that the, the, the audience would have expected in the parable for the father to push the son out, to denounce him as a son, and kick him to the road. But that's not what the father does. It says that in response, he divides the property. He divides the property. Now, interesting, in in the original language, this word property is the word bios. It's where we get the word life. It's where we, when we get the word like biology, this is the same word. So in the text, it says that he, he divides his bios. You see, this request is literally tearing the father apart. He's going to have to sell his land. He's going to have to liquefy that land away. And again, we've talked about before, the land, how much in that day that your land was tied to your social status, your identity, who you were, your honor in the community. And for a son to say, hey, while you're still living, I want you to watch as I tear the land apart would have been almost unbearable. And yet instead of the father 
kicking the sun out, beating the sun, which would have been totally appropriate to do, he grants him the request, and he splits up and divides the inheritance. Now, it says this, now not long after, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. So the story depicts a son that's going as far away from his father as possible, a distant country. And there it says he engages in wild living. Now this word wild literally means in excess. So he engages in an excessive lifestyle. He is pouring himself into things that he thinks is going to fill him up. He thinks is going to make him happy. And so this life of excess, this excessive living, we know prostitutes was involved. We know I'm sure there was many other things involved in him going out searching for something that he couldn't find. But what's interesting is this word excess, this excessive word, the root word behind it in the Greek is the word that means empty or abandoned. You see, he runs after so many things. He fills his life with all sorts of excessiveness. And yet in the end, he lives a life of emptiness. So in your next two fill-ins, he goes to a distant country. He goes to a distant country and he lives a life of emptiness. Excessiveness is filling your life with other things that just don't satisfy. And in the end, you're left empty. And so he lives a life of emptiness. Now, as the story continues, he wastes all of his money and a famine sweeps the region. He is eventually forced to rely on foreigners. Now, as a Jew, that would have been humiliating enough to have to live off the generosity of a foreigner. But he is tasked with having to feed the pigs which is one of the primary images for a Jew of sin and separation. This is why I can't be a Jew, because I love bacon too much. It's just delicious. But to a Jew, I can't touch it, I can't eat it, and I certainly can't eat what it eats. And we begin to see a picture of the state of this brother, the state of this son. He is in the pig pen. He's in the pig pen. That's your next fill-in. He's in the pig pen. It's a startling scene as the picture shows the state of the brother. He runs to a distant country. He lives a completely empty life of excessiveness. He's in the pig pen. And so the text says he comes to his senses. Now again, in the original language, this is just simply the reflexive pronoun, which means he came to himself. He faced himself. He looked himself in the mirror. He came to his senses. That's your final one. He came to himself. He had a long, hard look in the mirror and he came to his senses. And he said, what am I doing here? What am I doing in the pig pen? When one of my father's servants is living luxury compared to this, 
And he thinks to himself, surely I could go home. Surely my father will accept me. Certainly not as a son anymore. But perhaps I could go and ask to be one of his servants. I will arise and go to my father's house. And in effect, when he says that, what he is saying is, I repent. Because to a Jew, the the prime uh, way in which you repent is you turn and go the other way. Repentance is the process of going one way and stopping and turning and going the other way. And so very literally, he's gone to a distant country and he comes to his senses and he says, I need to turn around and go back. I need to go home. And so he starts on his way. And what's interesting is his mindset. If you notice in the text, his mindset actually changes. Because at first he says, maybe I'll go back and become a servant. One of my father's servants. But notice he gets to his father and notices what he actually asks. He asks to be a hired worker. And many have have noticed it because there's a distinction between a servant and a hired worker. A servant is someone who stayed on someone's land, worked the land, lived there, and essentially was, by extension, part of the family. Certainly not to the case of a brother or father or things like that, but servants were those who lived on the land and, and were there and were part of the whole economic system of what's going on. A hired man is just simply outside sourced work. It's somebody who lived off the land. It's somebody who did not live on the estate. It's someone that lived in a a surrounding nearby village. And then when needed, you would call him up and he'd come kind of like a plumber. Similar to a plumber or electrician. I don't think any of you have a plumber or electrician living in your house. You know, like, hey, I'll do all your electric if you'll give me the spare bedroom. Like, that would be a servant. But we don't do that, right? We, We understand hired work. You come, you do your work, I pay you, you go. And so somewhere on the trip, I don't know, I can't get inside the younger brother's head, but perhaps he thought, he'll never accept me as a servant. Like, I've done too much damage. I've caused too much pain. Maybe he'll just let me come and do some odd jobs around the house. In fact, others have noted that this plan to say, will you uh, take me on as one of your hired workers actually uh, communicates the idea that the son thinks that he's going to try to repay the father. That take me on, let me be one of your hired servants, I won't live there, I won't be close there, and as I work your land and I I charge you and you pay me, I will kind of work off my debt which has led many to believe that the younger brother is actually heading towards his father with the plan to repay the debt himself, a debt that would take a lifetime to repay. And here we see the love of the father. Because when the father sees him, it says in the text that he runs. Now, a a distinguished Middle Eastern patriarch would never run. Children might run, women might run, young men might run. But if you're the pillar of a community, you would never run because you have robes on. And you can't, maybe ladies, you'd understand better than me, you can't run, right? You can't do it. So the only way to run when you're wearing robes like that, particularly when you're wearing like a family robe or you're you're a distinguished member of the community, is you actually had to pull up the robe and run. 
Now, I don't know why I, I pranced there. That was weird. <laughs> I don't know. I don't see him like, oh, my son is like, I don't, that was weird. Sorry. But you have to pull up the robes, and to do that, you expose your bare legs, which was something you didn't do in that culture. You didn't expose yourself like that. And it shows us that the overwhelming joy and the overwhelming excitement of the father, he could not contain it, and he needed to get to his son as fast as possible, and he was willing to expose himself to do it. He is going for it. He is excited. His son has returned. Notice the son starts the pitch, right? He starts to talk. He's like, he, and the father won't even let him continue, right? He's like, father, I've seen it. You could tell that he'd been like rehearsing that speech as he had gone down the road. And so they, he runs to him and he embraces him. And the son's like, no, no, dad, I got, I got to say this. Like, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against the family. I no longer deserve to be called a son. Let me be a hired worker. And at the very thought of his son being a hired worker, he cut him off right there. What? No. No. I won't even let you finish. And he runs, and he declares, my son has returned. And he does some things, some ceremonial things that, that we can see to really reinstate the son uh, as a son. He puts on the family robe, the best robe, which would have been the family robe, probably his personal robe, which would have unmistakably been a sign of family. The servants don't wear this robe. The family ring or the family crest was put on his finger. And then he declares a celebration and the fatted calf is killed as the main course. Now, we know that in society, that society, most meals do not include meat, which was an expensive delicacy. Meat was reserved for special occasions. And so to throw a feast like that, this is not something where like, hey, we'll kill the fatted calf, we'll eat as a little community here, and then we'll put the rest in the refrigerator forever. No, no, no. A fatted calf feeds an entire community, feeds an entire village, and likely a multi-day celebration. So when the son comes back and he says, kill the fatted calf, he means invite everybody. It's time to party. This is not something you would do just the three of you or even your servants. To kill the fatted calf means it's time to party. Invite everyone you know. Invite everyone you know. The younger son wishes his father dead. He runs to a distant country. He lives an excessive, empty life. He's in the pig pen. And he faces himself. He must face himself. And what will he do? He plans to repay the debt and instead is embraced by a running father the family robes, and a feast for the ages. And the younger son comes home and finds his place at the table. Act two. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, the older brother Became, the world has come. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. The older son refuses to go in 
to the feast. Which was probably perhaps the biggest feast his father would ever throw. I mean, we're talking an entire village, an entire community has come to celebrate. And he remains outside the door. Which to the community would have been a huge vote of no confidence to the father. It would have been noticeable as this party was going on because of seating arrangements and where people would sit in the place of honor and things like that. They'd say, there's the father, there's the son we're celebrating. Where's the older son? It would have been very clear that the older, it's not like it was a big mingling and you know how if you're an introvert like me, you kind of like hide, you know, go and hide somewhere in the big groups and hopefully nobody notices you. This isn't like that. They would, it would have been very prevalent. It would have been very noticeable that the older son wasn't there. And it would have been a great dishonor and it would have been a great shame for the father to be throwing a feast and everybody knows the son is pouting outside. And what's even more embarrassing is that the father then leaves the party, the chief host of the party. This is, this is his shindig. This is like bride on your wedding day sort of thing. Like this is, this is the best day of your life. You are the, the guest of honor. And you're not even a guest. You're, you're the host of honor. And you have to leave your party to go talk to your son, who is publicly declaring that he disagrees with your decision. And he said to to him, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered the property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I think this older brother thinks three things. And if you get your fill out ready, it's this. First, he thinks he's the gold standard. He thinks he's the gold standard. He says, I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed you. Which I'm sure is a bit hyperbole, hyperbolic. I I don't know any kid who's never disobeyed. Do anyone have a a kid that's never disobeyed? Kids, have you never disobeyed your parents, right? But he's in in such anger. He's, He's talking with such big, you know, like big claims. I've never disobeyed you. He thinks he's the gold standard. And the word slave here is telling, isn't it? I have slaved for you. Not worked for you. We're not had the honor of being your son in this estate that one day I will inherit as the older son. No, no, in his rage, he uses the word slave. I slaved for you all these years. It reveals something about the heart of the older brother. He views the relationship not as father and son, but as slave and master. Someone who works for a a paycheck, who works for what he gets. And as long as I'm good and do my work and do everything I'm supposed to do, then you owe me. Then you owe me. Because I'm the golden boy. I'm the gold standard. Number two, he determines the double standard. He gets to determine the double standard in his own mind. I've worked myself to death to earn what I got, but my brother has done nothing to earn anything and yet you lavish him with wealth. He gets to determine the double standards in his own eyes. 
when, I was, uh, when I was in college, my brother was still in high school, and uh, their youth group back in the day, he, uh, they did an uh, Easter pageant, and they did it on this story. And so the deal was is that for two months, you were supposed to show up on Sunday nights, and we're going to begin learning parts. And what the leaders said is, we're not going to assign parts right away. We want to know who's coming, who's kind of committed to this thing. We want to know kind of who's picking up the lines better than others, just so we can put people in the right spot. So everyone just show up uh, for these two months, and then, you know, towards the end, we'll start divvying out roles. And so my brother was all excited. He wanted to go, and so he went to every single one of them. He showed up early. He was the good, so my dad's a pastor, so he was like the good pastor's kid. Like, he showed up, and he was going to do it, and he worked on the lines uh, uh, ahead of time and afterwards, and he was just really diligent about this because he had his eyes set on the star role. He wanted to be the prodigal son. It had the most lines, it had the most exposure, kind of like in our storybooks, right? It's the one that everyone looks to. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm an I'm a upperclassman now. I, I've put in my time. I've had to be the sheep or something else for a long time. But now, man, this is my time. I'm going to be the star of the show. So he showed up. He did everything. So it was one week out, and they did, they, uh, so we knew that that Sunday he was going to go get his, uh, they were going to sign the role. So he's all excited. He goes, and he comes back. And this is a true story. He comes back after, the, after the, a couple hours there at the church. He comes back, and he walks through the front door, and he is fuming. I mean, he is so mad. He starts stomping around. He comes, he throws his bags down. He walks in, and we're all sitting there. And we're like, Brent, what, what is wrong? He goes, you'll never guess. He's like, so Andrew, you know Andrew? Yeah, he showed up like twice. Yeah, he came like twice. He didn't know really what he was doing. Uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't come every time. And they gave him the prodigal uh, son role. They gave him the younger son role. And that just makes me so mad. I put so much work into this, and they gave it to him. And we said, well, Brent, what role did you get? <laughs> the older brother. <laughs> and I remember my dad smiling said, you're going to nail it, Brent. You're going to nail it. You see, when we do things the right way, when we think that we have never disobeyed, when we think that we're the ones that have, have got it all figured out and that we have set the standard, then we get to call out the double standards of everyone else. And we get angry when our sense of justice gets challenged. So he's the gold standard he picked it, predicts, and he gets to determine the double standard. But all in all, he gets to set the standard. And that's really what it comes down to. He gets to set the standard. He gets to determine who's in and who's out. He gets to determine who gets set, brought back in and who doesn't get to be brought back in. He gets to determine which ones measure up to him, the golden boy, the golden standard, and who doesn't. Notice in the text, he can't even call his brother by name. He calls him this son of yours. He won't even accept the title of son because he is so mad and he disagrees with his brother being brought into the family that he can't even use the word son. He can't even use the word brother. He says, this son of yours, not this brother of mine. This son of yours, not this brother of mine. Now the father makes one more plea to his son. Come home. Find your place at the table. 
and the listeners are on edge of their seats, will the elder brother be softened and join the feast? Here comes the pinnacle of the story. What's going to happen? Will the brother return? Will the brother forgive? Will the brother soften his heart to be able to? And just like that, the story ends. No resolution. No ending. We're all waiting for our good cry, right? We're waiting for, if we've been to any movie, we're waiting for our good cry. The father puts his arm around him and says, everything I have in yours, but we've got a lost son here and we have to celebrate. And the brother goes, you're right. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against my brother. And they all go in and they hug and they cry and the music swells and the credits roll and we're all left going, yes. (sighs) Yes. But the story ends. What's going to happen? The brother is left on the outside, and Jesus ends the story. I can hear the audible gasps of the Pharisees because they know the older brother is them. And we've looked at three times in the last two chapters of Luke, we've looked at passages in which the feast Entering a feast or not being able to get into a feast is a huge symbol, a huge sign of God's feast at the end of the ages when he calls his people, calls his children from all ends of the earth and they join together in the great feast, the great celebration at the end of the age. We know what feasts mean. And the story ends with the Pharisee on the outside. The story ends with the older brother not in, not home, not at the table. And the audience leans forward to see what will Jesus do? Will Jesus let the brother in or not? And he stops and walks away. The older son believes he is the gold standard. He calls out double standards and he sets the standard by which others are judged, and but in the end, he is on the outside, deciding if he will come home, if he will find his place at the table. What will he do? Why doesn't Jesus finish the story? Because in the end, the real story and the real audience is us. In effect, what Jesus is doing is he's holding a mirror up to us and says, what will you do? He's asking the Pharisees in the room and he's asking us this today. He holds a mirror up in front and he says, friends, what will you do? Will you enter? Will you come home? Will you find your place at the temple? Friends, what will we do? I'd like to call the band forward as we close. You see, this is a story about two sons, two ways, two approaches, two mindsets, two ways of approaching our Father, but the end, both are lost. Some of you are the younger brother. For a long time, you have lived like God is dead. You want the life God gives, but not God himself. You want what God can give you, a good life, a job, a vacation here and there. You want to give and receive the good gifts of your father, but you don't want the father. 
And so you wish him dead in your heart, even if you wouldn't say it out loud. And while he maintains his affection for you, he bears the agony. He's tear- you're tearing his life apart. You've run off to a distant country. And this can be dramatic examples, but sometimes the furthest away you can be from God is sitting in a church pew. You're here, but you're not here. You're somewhere else. Are you here? Right now, are you here or are you in a distant country somewhere else? And you're living a life of excess. Whether it's wealth, comfort, power, reputation, recognition, social standing, entertainment, work, you are trying to fill your life. And no matter how much you put in, you are left empty. You're in the pig pen. And you need to face yourself. Some of you are the younger brother. But some of us are the older brother. We believe we're the gold standard. We know the songs, we know the lingo, we know the do's and don'ts. And we look at the outside appearance And we think we can determine the double standards. Who's got it figured out? Who meets my level and standard? And we set that standard for others. And we determine whether or not to their face, likely not in our hearts though, who's in and who's out. Who's doing well and who's not doing well. Who's struggling and who's not. I think we should pray for them. Because they don't meet my standards. Because at the end of the day, isn't everyone's standards just our own? And so we see ourselves as the gold standard. Some of us are younger brothers, but many of us else are older brothers. And both are lost. Both are rejected by the Father, and both need to come home and find their place at the table. But forgiveness has a cost. Forgiveness always has a cost. Many see this passage and say, the younger brother, there was no cost to him. He freely received the love. He freely received him being brought in. Others see the older brother and say, he had a choice. There was no cost. He, He disrespected the father. He abandoned him. He walked away from the party. Where's the cost to come back in? There is a cost, friends. Because you see, when the younger brother leaves with the inheritance and wastes it, it's gone. It's gone. And so when the younger brother comes back and is reinstated as a brother, that means he gets a new client claim to a new inheritance, an inheritance that solely belongs to the older brother now. So when the father comes to the older brother and says, son, everything I have is yours, that's literally true. The other brother's inheritance is gone. It's kaput. It's over. And so to be brought back in means it's going to cost the elder brother. His inheritance is gone dramatically down because in order to reinstate the older brother, it's going to come at a great cost to the older brother. This is probably the reason he's so upset, one that we haven't talked about before, because this isn't just forgiveness. This is cost. It's going to cost him. 
But for the younger brother, he didn't have a true brother. He didn't have a true older brother. You see, a true older brother would have traveled the distant country. A true brother would have accepted the cost. A true brother would have celebrated the return at his own expense. And a true brother would have joined the feast at his own. But there were no true brothers in this story. There's a Pharisee for a brother instead. By putting a flawed brother in the story, though, we are invited to imagine and yearn for a better brother. We are asked and yearn and long for a better, truer, older brother. One that travels the distance of the country, not just in our world, but from heaven to earth. We have a true brother who's accepted the cost and lost more than inheritance, but his very life. We have a true brother who celebrates our return home and our place at the table. We have one, and his name is Jesus. And today, he's inviting you to find your home and come back to the table. Younger brothers, come back to the table. Older brothers, come back to the table. And find your home here.